0: Okay, that's, that's what's happening. Let's jump into our sermon. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm glad you came back. Last week was some heavy slogging, and you came back. So thank you. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to do the second half, and I want you to kind of imagine a scene with me that might be somewhat like what was going on. I'll put it in our context a little bit. I want you to imagine that a group of people, a group of believers have invited you over, maybe to a small group or something like a house church, and they said, come over. We are going to gather in my house. We're going to pray for one another. We're going to open the Scripture together and hear from God. We're going to share His table. We're going to encourage each other in the faith, and I want you to come over. And you think that sounds good. I want to know some people. I could sure use to be prayed for. I could pray for others. I want to be in and you think that sounds really good. So you say, "Okay, I'm in. What time do I come?" And they say, "You come at 7:30." Okay. Okay. 7:30. I'm coming. And you come 7:30? Yes, 7:30. Come to our house and we're going to gather in Jesus name and do these things. So, yeah. Okay, you get the address. You're good to go. Midweek, you text them. I'm coming to your house Thursday, right? Yep, 7.30, right. Okay, you're good. You're going to go to this thing. So you, you, you begin to drive to their house, and you pull into their driveway where, you, where they've told you to be, and there's already 10 cars there. Like, Boy, these, they have a lot of teenagers or something. What's all these cars here? So you think, well, it's unusual. So, so you think, oh, okay, we're going to go anyway. So you go, park far away. You weave your way past these cars. And have you ever been somewhere where the you can hear the gathering outside before you even get in loud, robust laughing and talking and you know you kind of know maybe if your neighbors have a bunch of people over, you kind of like, oh man what 's going on in there they 're laughing it 's hilarious you 're hearing that so you 're going what 's the deal? Are we late like, No, not late we 're right on the button seven thirty it 's loud in there what's Why are all these cars here?" And you open the door. Well, you knock first, right? <laughs> Not on that close of a basis. You knock, and they, come on in! And you look, just this, the place is full of people already. There's 30 people in this house. And you go, okay, what is going on? So you go in, and, and it's clear that food has happened, I mean, there's dirty plates everywhere. You see a scrap of this and a chunk of little loaf of bread here and a bunch of cups with just, you know, the, the last backwashes left in them. And they've clearly eaten. I mean, they've clearly eaten a meal. And you're like, huh, what, did I miss something here? And you go in and they're like, oh, we're just getting started. Come sit down with us. And they begin to pray. And, and, uh, and they're, they're, they're talking about Jesus. And you just have this feeling like something is wrong with this. What did I miss? And they're saying, oh, and remember how we shared the communion? They look at you, oh you didn't get any. Do we have any left? No. Well, there's a little heel of bread, and Frank drank all the wine. Sorry. Would this be bothersome to any of you? You just have this feeling that that you weren't invited to all of it? That somehow they had a meal and they did this stuff and then you came in later. How how would you feel about that? Like, why didn't I come to dinner? Why did you eat all the communion bread? What happened here? What what did I miss? Now, that's a made-up scenario. But it's something like I think we're going to read in 1 Corinthians 11, that this church would gather, but not everybody was included all the time. And some people got food and some didn't. And some people got communion elements and some didn't. And somebody drank all the wine and drank too much wine, and so they were drunk, and other people got nothing. You know what kind of church gathering is this? Some people are included, some people are left out. Some people have a lot, some people have nothing. It'd be you. Would you come back next week? No, right? You're like, I'm out of here. This was weird. I'm not. That's somewhat something like what we're going to piece together was happening. Some kind of gathering in Jesus' name that was not inclusive, that things were not being shared. It was really just a mess. And so this idea that I want us to get thinking about is that how should reflect why. How you do something should reflect why you even do the thing. Okay. How you do it should reflect why. I'll give you a an easy example, let's say you decided that you wanted to have a meal with either your family or your extended family or your roommates, whatever your living situation is. You say, I, we, we need to have a meal together. We need to connect. And so meals are a good time to connect. So that's what you, we're going to do. You set a time, you do it. But then how you gather looks like this. All right. Right? Well, it doesn't add up, right? If why you're gathering is to connect with one another and find out how you're doing and eat a meal together, but how you're doing it is everyone is on their device and no one's talking, it's incongruent, right? They do not support each other. If your purpose for having the meal is to connect, then while you're having the meal, you should say, let's put our phones away and put them on do not disturb so that we can connect with each other, right? Because how should reflect why. How you have a meal for connecting should reflect why. Otherwise, why do it? I mean, if your point is let's sit in the same room, put food in our bellies, and be in tune with the World Wide Web, then by all means, have your phones out because that's your point. But if your point is human interaction, then you need to set some parameters. How are we going to do this time together? Well, We're going to do it in such a way to support why. So that's kind of the idea here is that this church in Corinth, how they were gathering, how they were taking communion, how they were doing it was actually betraying. Why? It was incongruent. It gets to the point where Paul says, you know it actually would just be better if you didn't meet. Right? Just don't do that. Don't meet if you're going to come and some people get something and some people get nothing and some people get dinner and some people get a scrap and some people know when to come and some people don't, if the point of your church is to encourage each other and point to Jesus and celebrate his death and resurrection and how you're doing it is actually opposing that, then don't do it, right? Or or fix it. And so that's the scenario. I'm just trying to get us in the mindset behind what we're going to read is that how this church was meeting and how they were gathering and how they were celebrating the Lord's Supper was not in line with why you do it. it, it they would missed that. They, it, it was running at cross-purposes. It was defeating the point. So let's read it together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. We'll read through it, and then we'll make some sense of this whole idea of how and why going together. And again, my scenario is just kind of a, a guess based on some of this, but I think you'll see some elements might add up. So First Corinthians 11, verse 17. Paul says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. It's worse if you meet. Isn't that terrible? For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. Okay, so there's there's the situation. Probably some of you recognize the middle part of that, describing communion, but maybe you didn't realize some of the the context that's stuck in there. So here's our point today: how we take the Lord's supper should reflect why we take it. How we take the Lord's supper should reflect why we take it. And we were just read a scenario there where how they were taking it was opposing and violating. Why? We take it. So we're going to put these pieces together today, and it just happened to so work out that this passage was the first Sunday of the month. I did not plan that ahead, but the Holy Spirit did. So it's perfect that we're going to learn about communion, why and how to take it, and then we're going to take it together. So it's going to be perfect. So here, let's look at the situation. What is going on? That's the first thing. The situation, verse 17, and the following instructions, I do not commend you. it is worse. Wouldn't well, that be terrible? Have someone swim by, you know, it's so bad, it'd probably actually be better if you just didn't come at all. Like the, Not meeting would be better than what you're doing. So we've got a, a rough situation there, right? When you come together, it's actually a worse situation than if you just stayed home. So verse 18, here we start to get into it. The first thing is uh, there's divisions going on. There's there's Separations And it's a little unclear to me uh, this part. This is listen to how he says it, what, what he's getting at, right? In the first place, he come together as a church, there's divisions. He says, "I believe it in part," or I, I, he's like, I'm, "I'm inclined to believe it." And then this verse here is a little hard to understand his tone. And that's the trick when you're reading something. You don't really know, you can't hear a tone, you can't see a face. It says, for there must, be, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, I can't tell if he's being sarcastic. Well, I guess you guys, the only way to know a real believer is just to fight with each other. So why don't we just have it out and whoever's left at the end is the real believer. It could feel kind of sarcastic. Like, that's all you guys want to do anyway is fight. So I guess there's going to be fights. And that's just, I'm not sure that it's that, but you could make a case that it's almost sarcastic he's just sarcastically just saying that just seems to be all you guys know to do is fight and that's how the book opened i follow paul and i follow paulus and i follow peter and he's just going what so he might be just going oh that's all you guys seem to do is want to fight and it's the only way to separate anything i'm not sure that that's it but you can make a case for that the other way you could read this is paul just saying it's inevitable It's inevitable when you gather people together that there's going to be divisions. It's inevitable that as the church of God comes together that there is fighting, there's hostility because there's actually spiritual warfare, and it's going to happen, and I'm seeing it happen. I kind of think it's that. It could be the sarcastic tone. I don't know. But I think this is what he's saying. What you're seeing play out is an inevitable for any gathering of believers that there's spiritual warfare. There's attack, there's hostility, there's people with disingenuine motives, and it's going to happen. I'll show you a place where that, that is, it's, it's actually said in a lot of places in the New Testament, but in this one place here in Acts 20, it's the scene where Paul, he's actually sailing back to Jerusalem. Uh, On boats, but he stops on the shore and he sends for the Ephesian church elders and says, "Hey, I'm not even going to come. I'm not even going to stay a day. I'm going to here for like three hours. Have you ever had that? Someone's I'm passing through town. I have an appointment. I have three hours. If you want to meet for lunch, great. If not, I'll see you next time I'm around. That's kind of what it is. Like I'm going to be here a couple hours. I'm not spending the night. So they come down to the shore and they meet with him, the leaders of the Ephesian church. And this is what he says in Acts 20." Paul to the Ephesian elders. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. I think that's more likely what he's getting at there on first Corinthians eleven. That As soon as there's a gathering of believers, as soon as God's at work, there's opposition, there's wolves, there's an enemy wanting to tear it down, and he's telling these leaders, be alert, be paying attention, this is going to happen, and some people who you know and who you trust are going to have selfish motives, and they're going to be doing their own thing, and they have their own agenda. Have you ever encountered this, where you thought someone was with you, and you thought someone was on track for the Lord, and they had some other agenda are they just trying to sell you something? Or they're like, well, what I really believe, and it's this other crazy thing. And you're like, I don't know about that. So I think that's more likely what's going on here in 1 Corinthians. He's like, you come together, but there's divisions. And they, it, they're there because when people leave, we know they weren't really part of it. We see that in First John, too. He says, we, we know the spirit of Antichrist is here and because some people went out from us, and we know they were really never among us. They weren't really in it for the Lord it's some other motive, some other agenda. And Paul's saying, that's going on there. There's people with other motives and other agendas, and it's kind of inevitable. He's like, I, I wish it wasn't. It's inevitable that there's going to be dishonest people. It's inevitable that there's spiritual warfare, but it's inevitable what it does is reveal genuine believers. Now, you can't manipulate this in everybody who doesn't like your view. Well, you're not a real believer then. We don't... That's not the point, right? I don't think he's also saying, well, why don't you start some fights and whoever's left at the end is genuine. I don't think he's encouraging this behavior. I think he's just recognizing, "Ah, it's happened there. It's happened there. It's very disappointing when believers fight. It's very disappointing when you come across somebody and they have a hidden motive. And in the end, they might move on and it reveals they had some other agenda and, and the people who are really about Jesus remain. But it's not very fun. It's not very fun. It's not very enjoyable. It's not very pleasant. It's not very honoring to Christ. And he's like, that's what's going on there. So I think it's this tone. There's this inevitable action that's being revealed in their church. And the ones who are really there for Jesus are going to show up. But boy, is it not very fun to see it happen. So that's the first situation, right? Uh, There's fighting and it's, it's revealing who's really in for the Lord, but it's not very pleasant. Second thing. Back in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20, how they're taking the Lord's Supper comes on the table. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Right? This is where he's, it, you're, this is not, you shouldn't even call it by that name anymore. He's like, oh yeah, you're coming, and you're eating something, but it has nothing to do with the Lord, or his meal, or his purpose. This is where you get how you're doing it, is really fighting why we do it. He says, it's not the Lord's Supper you're eating. So look what he says. For an eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. And so this is where I sort of made up that scenario. Did some people, like half the group said, we're having a potluck together, but we're not telling you about it because we don't want you to come. And last time you brought something with tuna fish in it, and we did not like that. So you're out. And then they eat all the bread, and then somebody drinks all the wine, and then what is going on? Right? So one has his own meal, one gets nothing. Another one is drunk. Right? He's just like, what happened, man? (laughs) We're here to remember the body and blood of Jesus, and you just took it all. What's going on? What? What are you doing? Right? Eat at home. Right, Don't come into here starving. Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Now here's where it's a little bit different and that the early church was a house church, right? It's a little bit hard for us to imagine. I mean, how many of these would you have to handle to even hog them all, right? He'd be here four hours just opening them all. So it's a little bit hard for us to, to picture this, but this is a house church, right? So they're meeting in a home. They're not meeting in a big sanctuary with, with rows. They're sitting around. And, so, and much of the time they celebrated the Lord's table was in the middle of a meal, That's how it started. In the middle of the Passover meal, Jesus breaks the bread. After the meal, they drank. So it's in the middle of a meal. And you see that in the early church. They were breaking bread in one another's home. So they're eating dinner. And in the dinner, they're saying, hey, this bread is Jesus' body. And in the dinner, they're saying, this cup is Jesus' blood. So it's part of a meal. But what it looks like is happening there is that not everyone's in on the meal. Or not everybody got the right time or like it says, you're, you're humiliating those who have nothing. It could be that some of the existing social strata was being reinforced in the church. So perhaps there was some people who had more means, people who had less, they were already a little bit hungry, and the people with more means said, well, let's do our own potluck beforehand, but when these other people come, they got nothing anyways, and so they were reinforcing socioeconomic differences so people who already had nothing are reminded that they have nothing and again that's a little bit of trying to piece together some pieces I don't exactly know if it was like that but Paul's saying what you're doing people who already are poor you're neglecting other people are hogging and uh, you're you're despising the church of God you're treating it like nothing Or you're treating it like all those things in the world, those various standards and the have-nots and the elites and the not, you're actually reinforcing that value in the church and you're not reinforcing the community of Jesus. So in this church, the how was opposing the why. How they were taking communion was opposing the whole point of taking it how they were doing it by excluding people, how they were doing it by hogging, how they were doing it by getting intoxicated, how they were doing it by reinforcing social standards of who has and who doesn't, how they were doing it by making sure some knew and some didn't. All of that is contrary to the whole point of the gospel. That's, that's what he's saying. What you're doing is defeating the point. It's opposing it. It's undercutting. It's ruining the message, so that's the situation. However, it's happening, however, the exact meal looked, I don't know. But in so doing, they were actually working against the point. So, what is the point, right? How we take the Lord's Supper should reflect why we take it. Why do we take it, right? Why? And that's where we get these next verses that often I've read them in communion services and here I've just started right here in verse 23. Verse eleven twenty three. all the time, probably most of you have heard that, if you've been a part, but we, <laughs> you don't realize that these communion instructions were given in the middle of a mess. They were given in the middle of a church that was working against those purposes. So let's look at why do we take communion? Why do we do it? He gives us the thing. Verse 23, for I receive from the Lord. So first of all, It didn't come from some people. Some people didn't get together and say, how could we possibly remember Jesus? Oh, I know. Let's get some bread and a wine. No. It was God's idea. Here's what I'm going to tell you to do. So Paul says, I received this from the Lord. I didn't think it up. This is a received thing that Jesus started and he told to me. So it comes from him. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. Think about that. Think about a very close person to you betraying you. The context for our meal of remembering Jesus is betrayal. Of being handed over by someone who was side by side with him for years. That's the context of the meal is Jesus being betrayed. So he took the bread. Jesus took the bread in the middle of a meal, and when he had given thanks, he thanked the Lord even for that little piece of bread. And he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So when they, what did Paul say? You're not eating the Lord's meal. You're eating your own meal. You're eating the meal of selfishness, You're eating the meal of separation. You're eating the meal of division. You're eating the meal of exclusion. But you're sure not eating my meal because Jesus' meal points to Jesus, right? Do this. Take this little bread to remember me. I was betrayed. I was crucified. Willingly, freely offered myself for you. So when you do this meal, remember me. You sure cannot be remembering Jesus if you're doing this meal to exclude somebody else, right? He's like, there's no way that could be remembering me. So when you take that bread, remember, bring it to mind, right? Remember, this, even that word in English, the word dismember is to take something apart, right? Pull it apart. The word remember is to put it back together. Put it back together in your mind what Jesus did. Went to a cross, was nailed there, hung there, died. Put that back together. Remember him. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper. So see how it's in the middle of a meal. After supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. So again, that repeated. This meal should remember me. What is the new covenant in my blood? What is that about? And so what he's basically saying is there's a covenant, is a relationship, a legal contract, you might say. Uh, It's a binding agreement. So Jesus is saying, the one I'm doing now, the blood, the cup I'm giving you, is a new binding agreement in my blood as opposed to there must have been a previous covenant, a previous binding agreement that he's, he's following after. And so this would be, there is a covenant when God took the people of Israel to be his people. So that's him rescuing them out of slavery in Egypt And bringing them through the Red Sea, and he brings them to Mount Sinai, and he says, and you can read this in the book of Exodus, in Exodus 19 and 20 and 24, he says, I've brought you on eagle's wings to be my people. And they enter a covenant, say, We will be your people, and we will obey you. And so they have this ceremony where a whole bunch of animals are slaughtered, and they throw the blood on the altar, they throw it on the book, and they throw it on the people. Aren't you glad you live today? Like, oh, I just wore this new sweater and Moses just threw blood all over the thing, right? But the point was to be this, in this covenant people of God, there was a sacrificial ceremony and there was blood of the covenant. And it was thrown around. So the book of Hebrews tells us about this. I'm going to show you this in the book Hebrews. What's the, the first covenant so that we understand the second covenant? In Hebrews chapter 9, Verse 18, the writer of the Hebrews is talking about the first covenant, the one with Moses, the one I just described. You can read it in Exodus 19, 20, 24. He's going to explain that one and then put us to this one. So Hebrews 9, 18, he says, Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you so this is what Moses is saying so Jesus is using the very same language this is my blood of the covenant the first one Moses is saying this, this animal blood is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you and in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So in order for all these people to be in covenant, binding relationship with God, they had to be purified with blood. They had to have their sin which brings death. They said, well, we're going to put that sin on animals. They're going to be atonement. We're going to kill them. And that blood put on you is purifying you. It acts as a forgiving so that you, sinful people, can be in relationship with God. That was the first covenant. Same kind of language. This, this is the blood of the covenant. This is the purifying act that allows you to be in relationship with me. And the Hebrew writer says, yeah, without, without this, there's no forgiveness. Something dies. And God allows an animal to die in their place. So we come back here uh, when Jesus is saying, This is now the covenant in my blood. Right? It's not a bull that died, it's the Son of God who died. And you're purified in the blood of Jesus. And that's what he's saying this cup is that. So when you do it, remember that you were purified, not because of some animal, but because the Son of God who was perfect died for you. And then verse 26 says, for As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You announce it. It's a similar word that's used in context of preaching. When we take this, it's not just that we're taking an element. There is preaching happening. There's an announcement Jesus gave his body. Jesus shed his blood to purify you so that you could be in covenant with him. And it announces it. It proclaims it, it. It shouts it out. So you see how if what you're taking is excluding people and self-promoting, you're not doing anything about announcing what Jesus has done. You're just doing your own thing. I picked this back up in the book of Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 24, he's talking about what Christ did. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, right? He's saying he didn't go into tents and temples, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus did it once for all. So as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, Jesus did it once for all. You don't have to do animal sacrifices. You don't have to keep going back. It doesn't have to be done over and over and over again. Jesus, once for all sacrifice, pays the full price. It pays for your sin. He did it for you. And every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing it and you're remembering it. That's why we take the Lord's Supper, to remember him, to focus on him, and to proclaim it. When we take it today, we're going to be proclaiming with our mouths, with our hands, with our swallowing, Jesus did it. His blood paid for it. He did it once for all. You're purified by Jesus' blood. Because there's some in this room that probably don't know that. Maybe there's some in this room that's resisting that. And then you're not purified, and you're not in covenant with him, and your sins won't be forgiven, and you're going to face the weight of your own sin for him. So I'm hoping that even if you don't listen to my words, you'll look at these things and go, whew, I better think about that. Do I want to pay for my sins? Or do I want Jesus to pay for my sins? Do I want to go in there on my own merits? Or do I want Jesus to have gone before me? Even if you don't listen to me, listen to this. Listen to this announcement. Listen to what it's proclaiming. He died for you. Receive the gift. Okay. So that's why we take it, right? Why we take it, to remember and to proclaim Christ, to proclaim what he's done. So then the next thing is, well, how we take it. How we take the Lord's Supper should reflect why we take it. How we take it. It's like, well, don't you just open the little lid and drink it? I don't, that's not the point. Uh, how we take the Lord's Supper. Two things we see here in the rest of this passage. You check your own heart. And you check on one another. Check your own heart, check on one another. There's two things he shows us here at the end. We usually focus more on the first one, but we're going to see both of them. First, check your own heart. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. When you read this in context, it really changes this, doesn't it? It's really been sinking into me this week. I usually would read the communion part and then just read this verse and think an unworthy manner would be someone who's not a believer or an unworthy manner is that you had a bunch of sin during the week. But here, if we read the whole passage, the unworthy manner is you're taking the communion and you're not thinking about him, you're doing your own thing, or you're taking the communion and you're blocking other people, or it really has a lot more to do with the moment than it does what happened during the week, or it has a lot more to do with well, why are you taking this at all? Right? If you're taking it in an unworthy manner, it means you've lost the why and how you're doing it, is blocking other people, is it cross purposes? So it's really it's it's different to think of it in this context. He's telling you, check your own heart. Why are you taking this at all? What are you thinking about? Right? You're taking it in an unworthy manner. An unworthy manner is, I want some and you get none. Right? We just saw that. So it's very important we think about checking your own heart. Why am I doing this? Who am I promoting? He says, let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. I certainly think it means it includes... You know, if you've got unconfessed sin, go ahead and confess that to the Lord. I think it also has a lot to do about what we're just reading here. What is it that you're hoping? What is this cup announcing? What is it proclaiming? Who's being remembered? Who's being focused on? Look how serious it is. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. If you're here for some other reason and you're promoting yourself and you're promoting whatever their social structures were a mess and... You're announcing something. He's like, you're messing with this. This meal is supposed to point to the covenant with Jesus, and you're doing something else. You're going to bring judgment on yourself. Don't mess with this thing. Right? He says, that's why I many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. Like This is serious. Whatever is going on in Corinth, he's like, yeah, you remember Joe last week? Yeah, he's dead because don't mess with this. Don't obscure it for other people. Don't celebrate it in a way that's opposite of the gospel. That's pretty serious, isn't it? it says for, but we, if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned. So this idea is take yourself before the Lord. What's my real motive here? What am I really doing? And as the Lord reveals it, that you can confess and deal with it versus I'm just going to wander in there and chug it down and no big deal. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. Check your own heart. Is there some other reason you're here? Is there some other reason you're participating? Is there something that's self-promoting, that's excluding, that you're doing this? I think, why? I haven't seen this in a communion service as much, but I sure remember it at a baptism once. We were at Lake Padden, and I don't know, we had three, four, five people getting baptized. And it's wonderful someone's tell their testimony we baptize them we're on the beach we're cheering and is celebrating in the park and there's this guy that was with us and he'd he'd come here and he hung around our church for a little while he was kind of in and out of the housing and so on but he i forget what he told me he had but basically something where he couldn't control his talking and you're like that's not a real illness and then after like an hour around him you're like that might be a real illness he's not stopped talking I'd sure like him to stop, you know, but whether it's an excuse or not, I don't know, but he just, you're like, okay, okay, go, I got, go, stop, but um, he saw the praise and the excitement of people getting baptized, and he comes down to me, he's like, I I, I need to get baptized again, he's like, I've already been baptized, but I want to do it again right now, and I was like, hmm, I think he's seeing the feedback and the response and the, and the, the moment that these people are confessing are happening, and he just wants in on that. So I said, no, you, probably, you don't need to get baptized. There are reasons to be baptized again, but I just said, no, we'll talk later. You know, I, I just like, you're not going to jump in on this moment for yourself. This moment isn't about you. This is about people's faith with Jesus, and I just said, no. And he accepted that and didn't talk, you know, he didn't come back the next week to say, well, what what reasons might there be? I think he just wanted that moment. I want to get in on the celebration. I want to be recognized. I want this affirmation. And so his heart wasn't about Jesus. And so that's something when we come to the communion table, we check our own heart. What, what are we doing here? What are we really about? Are we living our life to remember Jesus? Is there some other thing that's driving us? Is there some other connection? Is there some other relationship? Is there Why am I here? is it to remember Jesus? Clearly they weren't. You know, they were here to like, well, it's a good meal and I can still be with the in crowd and put the out crowd down. And Paul's like, that's messing with your church and people are dying. Check your heart. Is it about announcing the Lord Jesus? Is it about promoting him? Is it about refocusing on him? Then that's where we want to be. So that's the first thing we do to take it. We check our own heart so that our how we're taking it's in line with why we're taking it. We line all that up. The second one, oh, I already said that, is that we check on one another. And this part, I think I've not done a good job thinking about and leading, but it really jumps out here in this context. You see it there. Verse 33, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. So he's saying, don't, don't come to the gathering looking for a big meal. Like, just take care of that at home so that everything you're doing is about Jesus. But this idea to wait for one another, to it's imperative. You must wait for one another. And it doesn't mean, you know, make sure the guy next to you and you drink it at the same time. I think it's the idea that you You know, And this is where I've gone wrong. I've made communion a lot of times about you in this moment with God. But he's also saying it's you in this moment with God and it's you in this moment with one another. Because Jesus didn't just come individually to save people. He came to make a community, a family, a people. And so in their communion celebration, people were actually being excluded and put down and and not welcomed. So he's saying, when you're going to come take this... Wait, make sure everybody's there, right? First of all, if they were given weird times and starting early, I don't know. Make sure everybody's there. But then make sure everyone's got what they need. Everyone knows what's going on. Everyone's included. Check on one another. And so I remember this is a great story, and I asked Nate if I could tell it. But there was a, a time, I don't know, three or four years ago, when we had, it wasn't a communion moment, it was a prayer moment. We said, hey, we're going to pray together today. Find the three or four people around you and we're going to pray. We don't do that very often, but we did that day. I don't remember why. And, um, and the Cornelsons noted that there was a new couple near them. And they thought, uh, it's a brand new people, this church. They're supposed to get with some other people to pray. They don't know anybody. Have you ever been in that moment? You're like, well, I'm praying with no one and I don't know what to do right now, and I'm uncomfortable here right now, and I don't know if you've ever been there, and you're like, I'm the new kid, and no one sat at my table. They sensed that, and they went over and said, you pray with us, right? And it was so perfect, and I believe, <laughs> and they said they were in tears because they just longed for connection. They were new to a community, and they wanted to be prayed for, and... Um, it's just that moment. I could have just been praying. I could just make it about me. I could just... be like, No, there's someone in the room that needs to be attended to, right? And so when you're doing the Lord's table, there is a moment with you and God and honoring God and being excited about his forgiveness in your life. But there's also a moment I think we need to look around. Does that person have what they need? Does that person seem lost? Does that person seem concerned? Is something wrong over there? Are they okay? Are they confused? I'm going to check on them. And that's because Christ didn't just come to save individuals, right? He came to create a community. He came to create a people. He came to draw us together. So the gospel isn't just you individually getting saved. It's you getting saved into a family of God. And so when we take the communion elements, it announces Jesus Death and resurrection, it proclaims it, but it also proclaims that together we are a body. Together we're in Christ. And so if we're taking the communion in such a way that doesn't bring people together, then we've actually worked against it, right? How you're taking it is defeating why. If how you're taking it excludes people, leaves people out, leaves people lost, then you haven't reflected what Jesus has done. So there's the how and the way, how we take the Lord's Supper should reflect why we take it. How we take it should be that our hearts are completely focused on, is Jesus being glorified? Is the cross being remembered? Is his purification for sin being preached with my actions? Is my heart in tune to that? Is there some other motive? You check it. And then how we take it, is everyone around me okay? Do they have what they need? Did they miss as simple as they came in the room and didn't know where one of these was? I'm going to go get you one. I think Matthew was taking care of us today, weren't you, buddy? Making sure everybody had one, right? Let's take care of it. So let's quit talking about it. Let's do it, huh? Let's do it. So let's have the worship team come up here. We want you to take some time to check your heart and take some time is anybody next to you doesn't have a little cup? Look right now. Hey, do you got one? You got one? Can I get you one? Can I get you one? That's okay. Do it. Do it. Check on one another. Bring it to somebody if they need it. Show them what they need. Help them out if they don't have what they need. So let's just take this first song to check your heart. And I'm going to come back and lead us to, as we check on one another, as we take it together.